This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's talk about where we are when it comes to the virus, and especially given the backdrop, Carol, of the broader mm. healthcare crisis. We've been in the midst of a broader healthcare crisis for a long time now, and we're in a very specific one here. Let's get into it with Vivian Lee, Dr. Vivian Lee, president of Health Platforms over at Verily Life Sciences. She joins us on the phone from New York. She's the author of a book, The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies that Work for Everyone. Man, if this pandemic hasn't laid bare everything that you're writing about, Dr. Lee, I don't know what does. First of all, congratulations uh, on the book. Tell us what you're seeing out there and sort of how it fits in, what we're experiencing right now fits into your longer-term thesis. Well, thanks so much for, for having me. And I, I think you couldn't have said it better. This is like a giant stress test for our, our healthcare system. And I think we're having some pretty serious chest pain. You know, we're, we're pretty much uh, struggling on almost all fronts, except for one, which is I have to say that I think that the, the, the heroic measures that our frontline healthcare workers have been demonstrating, I think that that is something that we should all continue to celebrate. But in terms of the system itself, I, I think we, we are seeing, as you say, so many of its flaws right now. All right. So let's envision that we have a strategy session, right, of all the great minds in the medical community, global medical community for that matter, and we can make this system better. What would be the three things you would change from day one? Well, for the for to start with, we have to really change how we're paying for healthcare and what we're paying for. Right now, we are paying in a fee-for-service model for things to be done to us, regardless of whether they make us healthy or not. And that fee-for-service kind of model means that our healthcare systems just live from fee to fee. And as you can see with COVID, as many of them have been uh, having you know, empty clinics and empty hospitals, they're actually being forced to shut down or even lay off people in so many, in so many different parts of the country, especially rural parts of the country. So first is we really have to change the way in which we are paying for healthcare. The second thing is we really have to um, take advantage of the new technologies. Telehealth is one example. We're seeing a lot greater use of that, uh, more digital health solutions so that people can look after their own health in their homes, in their, in their workplace environments, for example. But those have to, again, be used in a way in which they're paid for generating better health, not just for doing more things to people. So take advantage of more of the technology. And then the third is I think we need a lot more transparency about what it is we're going to have to pay for, how much it's going to cost, why it costs what it does, so that we can really start to link up the costs with what we're actually getting for those dollars. And so, Dr. Lee, part of what you're talking about, a lot of what you're talking about, especially in that description, goes against some very entrenched economic interests. Uh, there are a lot of folks, especially big companies on the managed care side, on the healthcare system side, on the pharmaceutical side, they, and maybe they wouldn't admit this in the cold light of day, they kind of like the way it works. They're making a lot of money. How do you 
essentially make the case to policy officials, many of whom hear from these uh, companies through lobbying. How do you sort of make this change? How do you break the system in a way that people might be okay with? Well, there's no question that change is hard, but I think you'd be surprised at how much support there is for change, especially right now. So when you talk about managed care companies or insurers, they actually really want people to stay healthy. The healthier right. people are, the less they have to pay out and the better they do. Most healthcare systems, most people who come into healthcare, physicians, nurses, therapists, we want our patients to be healthy. We are not hoping for them to be sick. But what we want to do is to have just better alignment so we're paid for them to be healthier. You know, right now we just have the wrong incentives, right? We are only paid if they're sick. But actually in some cases, like some clinics that are working in a Medicare Advantage model, and there are these clinics that are all over the country where they're just paid a fixed amount of money to keep their uh, seniors healthy, and they get paid that fixed amount no matter what happens, they actually are, are doing much better. They're actually spending more time with patients. There's less burnout. The patients uh, are hospitalized much less, and so they actually do better. So there really are some, some strong incentives right now for moving uh, to what we call a paying for better health or paying for outcomes model. But we just have to get it all aligned at the same time so that we all make that transition together. Dr. Vivian Lee, we have about a minute, and then we'll do some news, and then we'll come back. But in a minute or so, can you say, who's not buying into this whole idea of, let's just keep people well, and that's a smarter system? Who's not buying into that? I'm not sure that anyone's not buying into it, but I think that we have to make it a little bit easier to make that transition. It's almost impossible to live in a world where you're getting paid for doing a lot of things to people and then also getting paid for keeping them out of the hospital right. all at the same time. That's almost impossible. So we, we have to make that change pretty decisively and help those systems change. But I think most people are supportive of it. We do want to bring you a little piece of an interview that our David Weston did with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Check it out, everybody. If you're talking about a medical question, listen to the medical experts. That's the advice. And you won't get a, you will not get a conflicting message from the medical experts about things like hydroxychloroquine, about what the results of a vaccine trial are, or what the results of monoclonal antibodies. So when it comes to pure public health medical things, listen to what the medical experts say. All right, and we've got a medical expert with us, Dr. Vivian Lee, still with us, president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Science, former CEO of the $3.5 billion healthcare system, University of Utah Health, uh, still with us on the phone in New York. So, Dr. Lee, you are a medical expert. I'm assuming you agree with what we heard from Dr. Fauci. What would you say, then, is the right thing to do when it comes to reopening schools and colleges and universities? You know, it, we are in such a difficult situation right now because we need to keep our economy going. We actually need to invest in our future, which is, I think, a big part of why we need to get our universities uh, back up this fall. Those students need to continue studying because they're our future. And at the same time, we have this massive upswing in COVID across the country, and we have to keep healthy. We have to keep everyone healthy. So there's a tension. I think it's pretty clear that wearing masks, social distancing, hand washing, making sure that if you're sick or have been exposed that you isolate, um, that these precautions or these measures do work. 
Um, for college campuses, we actually just put out um, a paper last week recommending, putting forward a series of four recommendations for reopening our college campuses. And I'm, I'm happy to just go through those very quickly. Um, and the first is that we're really recommending that on top of all of the social distancing masks and everything, this is specifically around COVID-19 testing. It's recognizing that so many people, especially and including college-aged kids, um, are asymptomatic, even though they may be COVID-19 positive and may be able to infect other people. And so as a result, testing is really central to, to our strategy. So first, we're recommending that everyone get tested before they really engage back in the college campus. So either before they arrive back or right after they arrive. Secondly, we're recommending that they get tested about a week afterwards to pick up those people who might have gotten sick along the way or whose tests were inaccurate because there are Sometimes people may have the exposure, but the test might not be positive. Then we recommend everyone who does become symptomatic get tested, of course. And then finally, we're also recommending that at least a subset of people who are asymptomatic get tested regularly throughout the semester. So those are some of our recommendations. And so how feasible is that? I mean, you understand the business side of this very well, Dr. Lee. How feasible is it for a, a regular sort of everyday college or university to, to really execute that plan? Yeah, I think most universities have been spending a lot of their summers not on holiday and not on break, but really studying this problem and figuring out how to manage their campuses. And I really have to I have to give them a ton of credit for all the work that they've been doing. Um, there's the practical aspect of it, uh, which is challenging, but they all have student health services. Mm. There are a number of companies, including our own, barely, who are working on the, in these areas to try to support this effort. Uh, a lot of the lab testing companies have really stepped up as well to offer these services. In terms of the financial impact, the cost of the tests, are coming down. There are a number of different uh, companies that are in the space now, and that's um, helping to increase competition and reduce the costs. So it's financially, you know, I, I estimated in this paper that we wrote, maybe about $500 per student for the semester for the testing. And, you know, that's less than a couple weeks of unemployment pay. So just right. sort of weighing up the trade-offs, I, I think it is definitely worth that investment. But it sounds like bottom line, just got 20 seconds here, Dr. Lee, that we need to have tests that are readily available so we can almost every day, every week be taking them and quickly get the results. That's what it comes down to. That's right. Until we have a good treatment or a vaccine, as we heard, we need tests that are available and turnaround times that are quick. There's, we can't wait weeks for the turnaround. It needs to come back right away so that we know how to act and how to respond. That's a critical part for sure. Great to catch up with you. We hope you'll come back and spend some more time with us. Vivian Lee, president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Sciences, also the author of The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies that Work for Everyone and giving us a strategy for back to school that yeah. it sounds like uh, a lot of people may be following. Our thanks to her. We do have Joel Weber with us, of course, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from Massachusetts, along with Shelly Banjo, senior writer for Bloomberg. She's down in gorgeous Asheville, North Carolina. Lucky her. Uh, and she's got a terrific story, uh, along with Mark Bergen, in the issue, this current issue of Bloomberg Business Week. It's on the terminal and online today. Joel, tee this up. This is such an important topic. We've been talking so much about big tech, and this is a slightly different twist, but goes to so many of the big issues around big tech. So, you know, a week ago now, uh, big tech sort of got grilled in front of uh, lawmakers uh, virtually. Um, and I think that it was part of 
something that we're going to see in a conversation that we're going to continue to have in the weeks and months ahead. Um, and for Google specifically, that conversation is going to be a lot about antitrust. And what uh, Mark and Shelley did in this story was not, not so much take the antitrust conversation head on, but to look at a corner of Google's uh, business, search ads, that's literally what makes it such a, a, a powerhouse. And for certain small businesses, especially those in the service world, and, and get this, in the middle of the pandemic, the ones that Mark and Shelley were, were wise to look at specifically were, were therapists and mental health professionals who have actually felt the impact of, of Google's pricing power in a way that really resembles a tax. And I think this is going to be something that will be fascinating how much lawmakers want to look at that. Uh, so, Shelley, what, what are the nuances that you and Mark discovered as you sort of dug into how much power and dominance Google has in the search world? Yeah, the craziest thing about the story is that, um, you know, as these things go, is that you, we didn't actually set out to write set out to write an antitrust story. We were kind of curious about all these ads that kept popping up during the pandemic around mental health and wanted to figure out, like, is, is someone profiting off of this pandemic from, like, a mental health perspective? And uh, we just started talking to therapists. And every single time we spoke to a therapist, it was Google, 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 Google. And um, particularly the one that we um, end up featuring the most in our story is this therapist um, named Ellen Roth, who said, um, you know, you can't have a business, uh, my kind of business, without without Google search. It's um, It's just like, you know, she goes through her list of monthly bills and it's, you know, rent, uh, you know, heating or air conditioning, power and, and Google. But what she noticed, Shelley, this is such a great story, is that during the pandemic, um, I think you know, you guys know in your story that the prices for her regular keywords jumped sharply. And this is kind of a key way of getting noticed uh, in the online world. Right. So during the pandemic, everything else shut down except for the Internet. And so um, that was really the only way for people to find you. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, searches for online therapy shot up as people started to realize, oh, shoot, like this is not something that's going to be over quickly. I, I'm going to need some help with this. Um, and it just became prohibitively expensive for um, some of these therapists. Uh, to keep putting Google search ads and keep paying for them. But the problem is if you don't pay for the search ads, you're not going to get to the customers. And Google's really pushing this. I mean, you, you have some great anecdotes about, you know, the sales reps calling up, you know, these therapists and, and kind of putting the hard sell on them and using the, the economics and the economics of crisis really uh, in many ways to, to drive the business. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting nuance because it's, there's nothing wrong or illegal about making money, especially during, um, you know, pandemics or natural disasters. Every Bloomberg uh, story regarding natural disasters will look into who's making money off of, off of these kinds of things. Um, but uh, at the same time, these people have no other choice. And uh, Google can kind of take advantage of that by pushing things like automation, um, um, you know, not having as good of customer service and, and things that these people really rely on because there's no other place to go. And so the question is, once you become that monopoly and you have so much power, does it become then an antitrust issue? And and so play that out a little bit, Shelley. Where, where will lawmakers put their gaze um, 
and how does how does all of this fit together in the weeks ahead? Yeah, so I mean, search dominance in itself is not illegal, um, and so the issue for lawmakers is trying to figure out um, is is Google actually abusing that power? And so one other part of the story that we look into is this idea of Google directing people to certain places that make the most money for them. So with therapy, for example, now if you type in therapist, it's going to go up to, um, you're, you're going to spit out some um, therapists near you that uh, on Google Maps that, that have paid for these services. And so, um, you know, does Google then take take over um healthcare and search and and those types of things that previously might have gone um, to to other businesses. Are they going to be abusing that power? And what lawmakers need to find out is, you know, does it go beyond just being big? Does it go beyond just um, having power? It's what do you do with that power? And um, is, is that part of that illegal? And, and so, Shelley, the you know what the Google conversation is one that is um, obviously uh, something that the lawmakers will probably focus on uh, more more so than um, other big tech companies, even perhaps. And and that uh, that power that they have. When you actually talk to the the small business owners and and the therapists that that are in the story, you know the thing that I found sort of so fascinating about it was like. At the end of the day, this is the option for them, right? And so, what other options do do they feel like they even have? Yeah, I mean, when you ask about Bing, which is the second search engine, the therapists would just laugh. Honestly, they would just be like, "That's not a thing. Um, we we only have Google." Um, and the interesting thing is that Google likes to paint this big picture of competition with ads. Oh, there's Facebook, and there's um, all sorts of different companies that um, even television and billboards, like we fight with everyone, um, but, you know, uh, at Amazon. But like, as we point out in the story, like nobody's going on Amazon to search for a therapist, right. at, at least not yet. And um, and so for these service providers, um, you know, they, they really there really is no other option. And so, you know, Google can talk about all the different competition that they face. But in a lot of industries, they're really the only game in town. And it's up to them to, to you know, kind of keep coloring in within the lines or right. or not. And if they don't, then the government can go after them. As one, as one source in your story, it's, it says the bigger question is whether Google is abusing its power. It really comes down to that. It's a great read. It's the cover story of the magazine. Shelley Banjo, thank you so much, senior writer at Bloomberg News. And our thanks to Jill Weber, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. Well, and what's interesting is uh, check out that story because it also points out that, you know, People are also taking advantage of YouTube owned by Google, and maybe they're uh, yeah. doing a therapy session on a Google Meet. So, you know, this, this all-encompassing nature is really something worth exploring. It's a great story by Shelly Banjo. Our thanks to her. Let's check in with our pal Emily Chasen. She is back with us to talk a little bit about the world of green. That is her beat. She is sustainability editor for Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone from New York City. Big green mortgage dilemma. All right. I know about a big green egg, Emily Chasen. I love grilling on that. But big green mortgage dilemma, this is a whole other thing. Talk about what's going on when it comes to mortgages, because people are thinking a lot about that right now, especially with rates so low. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, you go out and finance your mortgage today, and it has nothing to do with how green your home is. And this is a thing that has actually happened more in the multifamily housing market for apartment buildings and stuff, is that you can get lower rates on your refinance or something if you're going to do 
um, green improvements to your building as a landlord, but it hasn't quite made its way into residential mortgages yet. So um, this is a big question for banks in particular, because when they look at trying to figure out the climate impact of their loans, um, mortgages are sort of a big question mark. You don't really know which house is more energy efficient than others. So is it banks just not on board? Do we need the government to incent banks to do it? Like, I feel like, you know, this is where tax policy, right, can be very persuasive um, in terms of getting people to do something. So where's the breakdown, Emily? Yeah, well, you know, Europe is further ahead, of course, as they normally are in this stuff. But um, they have an energy efficient mortgages action plan. Their COVID-19 green recovery plan could include, you know, billions of euros a year in grants and guarantees for sealing up drafty buildings or offering green mortgages. So um, there is stuff that can happen. What was really exciting this past week was that Fannie Mae sold its first um, single family home green bonds, which could create a market for um, banks to sell green mortgages in the future. All right. So if I may, I'm going to shift gears because I'm obsessed with... Because he's probably with... hungry. Are you hungry? I'm a little hungry. Um, <laughs> faux meat. Uh, I love Impossible. In fact, I, I love Impossible and beyond. In fact, on my way into the office this morning, I, I grabbed the Impossible sausage uh, from Starbucks, which I have to say, I've said it on this program before, this is not a product it's endorsement. Good. Uh, impossible sausage at Starbucks better than the Beyond sausage at Dunkin'. I've tried them both. Uh, I've Ooh. tried them both multiple times. Wow. Uh, very tasty. Taste test. We also know, Emily Chasen, you know better than I, that the venture world, they see something work and they're like, hmm, is there anything else where we can invest in uh, related to that? That is definitely happening uh, when it comes to the so-called alternative protein market. Yeah, um, I would say that like sustainability companies in the market right now are super hot. Beyond Meat was one of the best performing IPOs in decades, right? Um, so venture capital firms really want to see if they can repeat that. And they've basically doubled their bets on alternative protein makers this year, raising over a billion for startups that focus on everything from lab-grown meat to protein that comes from volcanic microbes. Um, just this week, there was, a, on the actual meat side, there was an IPO of um, Vital Farms, which is like a sustainable butter and egg company, and um, sustainable agriculture, and just that whole area. It, it had a huge pop of, I think, it's 75% in two days of trading. Yeah, that's pretty cool. IPO, I think it was at, was it 22? And it's now at 40 and change. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's really popped up big time. Yeah, I know. Should we anticipate there's going to be a lot more? I feel like that's kind of a no brainer, right? Yeah, there's going to be a ton more in alternative meat. I was talking to an investor the other week who focuses on alternative protein and says that meat is so boring. We've already figured out all the ways to make that efficient. And there's so much new stuff in um, sustainable meat and alternative meat. There's, you know, everyone wants to know what the flavor is, what the taste is. Yeah. What's this kind versus the other kind. So it's just more interesting for consumers. Everyone likes variety. So um, there's some big raises like Blackstone just did – a big bet on Oatly, which is the yes. oat milk maker where the oat milk craze last Just year. had some um, this morning. Yeah. Valued the company at $2 billion. That was earlier this year. Um, Impossible Foods, which you were talking about earlier, they raised $500 million to support expansion globally. But there's also, you know, smaller companies like Memphis Meats, which grows like lab-grown meat. Um, they raised $161 million this year. And um, another company is called Nature's Find, which makes this 
alternative protein developed from um, a volcanic microbe they discovered in Yellowstone Park. They were looking for how NASA could develop protein um, on Mars or something like that in the future, and they discovered this protein, and now they're they're making uh, food from it. They're like, who needs to go to Mars? We can do it right here. (laughs) All right. Emily Chasen, thank you so much. She's our sustainability editor at Bloomberg News. Joining us on the phone in New York. Check out her work and check out all of the work that Bloomberg Green is doing. It's really a cool vertical. I had some brat, bratwurst. Yeah, I was going to say, didn't you say you went, uh, oh yeah, the the Beyond Meat sausage, the Beyond Meat sausage, the um, like the link sausage, right? Like, did did you sort of like grill it or fry it? Yeah, that too. It's really good. But this was bratwurst that we did with sauerkraut. Yeah. Like, it was really good. I mean, Emily's exactly right. It is all about the taste in in many ways. And I think if you. If you find something that tastes good and then you feel like it's better environmentally and it's better for you physically, like, you're going to go with that. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. We've just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Bouncing around, but we've got a rally underway. In particular, the Dow up about one and a quarter percent. Let's drive to the close with Larry Pitkowski. He's co-founder and portfolio manager at Good Haven Capital Management, joining us once again on the phone in Milburn, New Jersey, which is where he is based. How are you? I am uh, pretty well. How are you, Carol? Uh, doing okay. Doing okay. You know, uh, life is certainly abnormal, uh, and we continue on. I am curious um, how you see the second half. Do you see things improving? I think investors, Larry, right now are trying to figure out what's next. You know, Carol, I'm going to share with you one of the most important phrases in investing, which is, I don't know. <laughs> and, and I'm not, I'm only, I'm really not being facetious. Uh, yeah. I don't know. And I think the important thing is, is to be able to find a couple of opportunities and ways to allocate capital when you don't know exactly what's coming. And I think the way you do that, you know, uh, you need to look for where there are sectors that have not really participated in the rally, and you need to find things that appear undervalued, even if uh, we have a, you know, very uneven economic situation. And this is an unusual period. I mean, even for those of us that have been around for a while and have have seen a lot of different crises, the last six months were some of the most unusual ever. Um, So... Uh, but I think at Good Haven, we had a, a solid second quarter. I think we're up about 20%. The nice folks at Lipper keep telling us we're near the top of our category. And I think we still own a lot of cheap stocks uh, that I think have plenty of upside. And I think we did some good buying during the downturn. But the range of economic outcomes from here is still very wide. Um, and I think that should play well for stock pickers. Yeah. I mean, Larry, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, relatively cheap because we were talking earlier in the show about a report out of Bank of America essentially saying, look, you need to be buying stocks ahead of a vaccine whenever that comes, because even as we look at an S&P that may hit record levels, even as, as Carol just mentioned, 
we have the Dow up plus one percent or uh, better right yeah, now. Better, yeah. um, you know, we are still looking at a market that if the economy does start to rev at all, there could be some opportunities for specific names. You know, uh, Jason, I'm I'm the I'm the wayward child of a somewhat biblical family. So I'll leave I'll leave you I'll give you a biblical comment. You can't start building the ark when it starts pouring rain. It doesn't right. work that way. You know, you need to have laid out a thesis ahead of when the rest of the world is discussing it. As a as a very smart friend friend of mine likes to always say, you can have cheap stocks or good headlines, but you can't have them both at the same time. Yeah. Okay, so. For instance, you know, one of our biggest holdings is a gold miner, is Barrick Gold, okay? Nobody thought that was such an interesting idea a couple of years ago when we were making it a big holding. I mean, we got questions and we got, you know, snickers and whatnot. Well, you know, it's worked out very well. It's not really the thing I really want to talk about, but, you know, you need to be looking for things that are not what everybody thinks today are, are the greatest idea because those are where the opportunities are. So... Does that mean you don't want to be in those big tech names at all that have just run up? I mean, they are so much the market, right? And they are so much the market momentum. Um, I know what you say about look for those sectors that haven't participated or those names that haven't participated in the rally. But, you know, if you do that, you miss on some tre- miss out on some tremendous gains. Well, I, I think there's a difference between saying this is something where I want to back up the truck today and or versus it's something that I own that I'm, I think has, still has upside. You know, Alphabet is a one of our top three holdings. Now, we've yeah. made many multiples of our money on it. The price is not in any way, you know, uh, ridiculous compared to what the earnings might be a year and a half from now. I, I mean, I think I'm, uh, I'm not looking at the numbers. But I think it's probably uh, xing out the cash, probably 23, 24 times earnings a year and a half out. Um, you know, that's that's hardly a ridiculous number for a company that should get back to growing uh, that has a really dominant position. So there are areas. The, the interesting thing about the current environment is you have pockets of euphoria. You have negative investor sentiment. Somebody just sent me the AAI readings, which it's, mm-hmm. you know, the bullish sentiment is, is low, okay? Mm-hmm. But yet you have pockets of euphoria, and yet you have certain sectors that have really not participated. So, you know, you need to, if you own a great quality growing company like an Alphabet, okay, uh, one of the mistakes to make in life is thinking, oh, you know, you have to sell it and realize the gain just to find something a little bit cheaper. Not necessarily. Now, it doesn't mean... There's not moments where uh, there aren't better buys, but that doesn't mean you have to sell it and find something else. But, you know, we have found areas lately that appear to be more attractive places for cash. So what are you just altogether avoiding at this moment, Larry? Well, not to be facetious, but I always avoid things that I feel like I don't understand where the business is headed mm. within a range. Okay, and that's I think really important. I mean, it's it's important to buy things at attractive valuations, but if you don't think you understand what the business is going to look like a little bit down the road, I think you should avoid that. And by the way, I think the uh, you know the, the what you've seen lately is an acceleration of all kinds of trends that were happening anyway uh, from a business model sense. Um, so. There's plenty in the world of investing or allocating capital. You should pass on a very high percentage of the things you look at because you don't understand the business, you don't understand where it's going, or, you know, and you should just keep looking for the couple of things a year that you think you have an edge in understanding and are priced attractively. 
Hmm. Yeah. No, it makes sense. It's very logical, you know, in terms of looking at right. the market. All right, Larry, thank you so much. Good to check in with you. Larry Pitkowski, he's co-founder, portfolio manager at Good Haven Capital Management on the phone uh, in Milburn, New Jersey, which is where they're based, Jason. That's exactly right. Great state of New Jersey, I feel like, is well represented here, you know, from Larry <laughs> Pitkowski to Bruce Springsteen. You got it all here at the Garden State. Uh, yeah, we are uh, looking at a very like great day. I feel like there's a little laughter or sarcasm in all of that? I, I you making I have fun no of idea New what Jersey? you're talking about. Are you making fun of New Jersey? You really get your hackles up when anybody says anything about New Jersey. It's well, sort of like when I question your knowledge of sports and you immediately like, don't make fun of the girl. And in reality, I'm just making fun of you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I feel so much better. Where's Debbie when I need her? Oh, boy. Yeah. Debbie, she was ferocious on the texting today. She uh, was. Yeah, sending you... Uh, Picks and programs from 1981. I feel like it's like blackmail material. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Brooks Brothers, back in the day. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.